0: Welcome to the Farm Commons Podcast, where we make farm law accessible and actionable for sustainable farmers and ranchers, as well as their networks of support. I'm Eva.
1: And I'm Kate. In each episode, we explore real legal issues faced on farms every day, providing key knowledge and tangible solutions to help you grow a thriving agricultural business.
0: From managing liability to navigating tough conversations with landlords and neighbors, we've got your back. Let's get started. Hey, Eva. How's it going?
1: Great, Kate. Just easing into the afternoon with some tea. I've got this really lovely tisane of Mm. mullen and echinacea. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to keep my body nourished with um, some good herbs this cold season.
0: Yeah, that sounds delicious. And I think mullein is good for respiratory health and echinacea is good for the immune system. So sounds like you've made some great choices for the time of year. It also just makes me appreciate the you know abundance of medicine and food that grows wild. Both mullein and echinacea are wild grown. And, you know, they're just out there thriving, very
1: little human intervention. Yeah, so true. There's a ton of mullein just growing along um, one of the trails that I like to run here in Winston-Salem. And they are massive plants in the summer, like like super wide furry leaves and the um, flower stalks get so tall. There's so much biomass, just like growing, no intervention. However. My garden tomatoes that I grew in um, baskets this year needed trellising, pruning, um, a good amount of regular fertilizing this summer, uh, you know, to produce enough for even just like tomato sandwiches.
0: Oh, yeah, those tomatoes. But, you know, I'm, I think where I see where this is going and um, that there's a distinction between wild foods, which require very little human maintenance and what I'll call cultivated crops, like the fruits, greens, and root vegetables that might make up the bulk of what we see in grocery stores. And we know that many growers sell wild foods alongside their more conventional cultivated crops, and those wild foods are an important part of the revenue stream for many farms. But of course, this distinction between wild foods and crops is actually really important when it comes to protecting farm revenue with crop insurance. And we're going to talk about that today.
1: Yes, absolutely. That is the plan. Um, We're going to talk about how you producers out there can manage risks when wild foraged crops are lost due to weather, theft, disease, and low yield. So while all food crops, of course, are vulnerable to these risks, uh, many farmers and ranchers are able to choose crops or livestock insurance to protect their revenue from the things that you guys are producing. However, wild food crops do not benefit from crop insurance protection, even though they can make up a significant portion of a farm business and can also command a higher market value. So sadly, they are uninsurable crops, um, and this is likely not news to you producers out there who are regularly foraging and selling things like ramps, mushrooms, berries, herbs, and all those um, yummy edibles that are foraged. However, we do have some good news to share in this episode. There are alternative strategies to help you manage the fallout of failure of your wild foraged crop. And our staff attorney, Chloe, is here to help us understand your options. Hi, Chloe. Hey, Chloe. Hi, guys. Great to be here. So
0: so glad that you are going to share some of your wisdom and legal insights about this topic. I know that it led us on some interesting conversations about um just the difference in, in farming and growing and food philosophies and food sovereignty. And um, I think before we you know, maybe try to get into any any of that stuff, I want to define some terms here for our listeners who might be wise in the way of plants, but not as well versed in the nuances of crop insurance. So can you can you give us uh, some some legal terms that we should know about?
2: Sure. Uh, Let's go ahead and dive in. Let's talk about how crop insurance works in general and then how it works in conjunction with wild products as well. And to start, I want to say when I say wild products or foods, I mean plants that, one, are growing with little help or interference from people, and two, are foraged and collected in a process that's often called wildcrafting. Which is similar to what would be called harvesting in a cultivated farm operation. And a lot of these wild products come from forests, but some can come from grasslands too. Okay, so now onto crop insurance. Generally speaking, crop insurance covers the risk of lost revenue from crop failure due to reasons outside the farmer's control. And federal crop insurance historically does this one single crop at a time. Taking that into consideration, it may not be surprising that the USDA hasn't created a federal crop insurance program for a specific wild plant like they've done, say, for cultivated crops like corn, wheat, or tomatoes. The USDA's process for developing a specific crop insurance program relies on a lot of market data and accepted best production practices. That's what we call the actuarial process. These data and norms are really just not readily available for wild plants. And I think you might agree that the USDA isn't well positioned to develop those norms and find that data. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: However, okay, so if you remember from one of our recent episodes on crop insurance, and that's episode number 47 if you want to go check that one out. In that episode, we talked about the whole farm revenue and micro farm protection programs. And we learned that those programs were designed to fill crop insurance gaps for farms that grow a large variety of crops by covering lost revenue from all crops produced on the farm. Those programs ensure revenue, not specific crops. So that might make you ask, why doesn't that get wild plants coverage? Well, the whole farm revenue program policies explicitly exclude what they call forest products from coverage. And unfortunately, we aren't given a clear legal definition of what forest products in the whole farm revenue policies means. But if we take that exclusion and other requirements into consideration, it does become clear that wild plants aren't insurable. For example, because a Schedule F is required, we do know that insurable income must come from cultivating, operating, or managing a farm. And we also know that the USDA has defined the term specialty crop to definitively exclude wild plants. Mm. Okay. Yeah.
0: Thanks for bringing us through those terms. and giving us an idea of what wild forage crops actually are. My question now is, why are they uninsurable under WFRP, especially since these kinds of foods would generally be considered specialty?
2: Yeah, I mean, that really comes down to the fact that what we think is logical and what the law says are often quite different. So let's look at it this way. Crop insurance is designed to protect one's investment of time and money. So that's for inputs like seeds, soil amendments, herbicides, pesticides, equipment use, and labor. It's designed to protect the input, all those inputs uh, into a, single, a plant. And that plant is then going to take a long time to mature and is vulnerable to, say, acts of nature or other forces outside of the farmer's control. So the idea here is that there isn't a comparable investment
1: of time and money into wild plants. They grow with us or without us. Yeah, and that brings us back to that management piece that we were chatting about earlier where, you know, that mullein along the trail wants to grow naturally, but tomatoes need more management to actually produce, um, you know, a viable, marketable crop.
0: But I'm, I'm wondering, what is management here? So if we have a producer who relies on forage products and uh, those forage products bring in dependable levels of revenue for their business and livelihoods, they're not just going out and, and picking what's there. They're probably leasing specific parcels of land to forage. They're monitoring harvest sites and harvesting with a very careful process that avoids stock depletion And they're probably clearing the area of problematic debris, even monitoring for pests and wildlife. And why is
2: that not sufficient management for coverage? That's a great question. And those are really excellent points. Um, The USDA's definition of specialty crop explicitly acknowledges that some plants can be brought into cultivation by applying some level of management. So you're on the right track. Potentially, all those examples you just shared, Kate, could meet that standard. I mean, look at maple syrup. That is certainly a forest product, but it is actually considered a specialty crop, and it is insurable under whole farm revenue protection in certain counties. But this is precisely because farmers began managing this wild product. So we can take from that on a plant-by-plant basis... Producers could make arguments to try and get coverage by bringing a wild plant into the specialty crop fold. But, of course, jumping through those administrative hurdles takes time and resources. Not everyone has the privilege to pursue this. And ultimately, the USDA is going to decide what is insurable, and that involves that good old actuarial science While the harvester can choose the location, they can increase their skills of foraging, they can go out at the right time, that's about all that is in control of the harvester. There is little management that can be controlled for risk. It is mostly up to nature. And from an actuarial standpoint, this is an unacceptable risk. There are just too many variables. So foragers are left without coverage.
0: Hmm. I am feeling some frustration with the logic, but do see the sense behind it. But I want to pause here and hold some space for listeners who may also be feeling some of this frustration, especially if foraging is tied to so much more than just making a profit for you. It's tied to wildlands. It's tied to cultural practices. It's tied to the ability to access land where there are plants of use and stewarding not only the land where those plants grow, but also the knowledge of their uses, which are ancestral traditions of plant medicine and traditional foodways. So there's a lot of power dynamics at play. Who is doing the foraging and who owns the land where the foraging is happening?
1: Yes, that all resonates with me, Kate. Those are such important considerations regarding land use and cultural practices that are interweaving with how people are making a livelihood off of the land, whether they're thinking of cultivation, as in rows, or like actively steward, stewarding a patch of land that happens to grow plants of use. Um, And so if we can't use crop insurance to cover wild foraged crop losses, what risk management options do producers have?
2: Well, producers do have options. Um, I'm going to talk about three, uh, and that's going to be diversification, CSAs, and sales agreements. So let's start with diversification. This is the first strategy. And if having insurance coverage is important to you, You got to just make sure you grow insurable crops and keep wild forage crops as more supplemental to your income. And an important note you can check on which crops are covered under any USDA insurance program for your area specifically at RMA's website. So that's a really helpful tool. You can also bring the wild plants that you rely on under cultivation. So this would likely mean maybe transplanting and growing them in rows or maybe even crossbreeding so that you, these plants that you rely on could be considered specialty crops. You know, and one example, cultivated wild rice, it is insured even under the single crop federal crop insurance program, of course, only in certain places. But in order for it to be insurable, it has to be planted for harvest in a man-made patty. Okay, and finally, as a long-term strategy, foragers could collaborate and begin to set standards for good practices and document data on foraging so that eventually that actuarial data will be available for the USDA's assessment. The second strategy is a CSA, or community-supported agriculture. All the listeners are probably familiar with this model. Now, this isn't insurance, but it does give a farmer funds up front before the output is certain. The CSA model was designed to have customers share in the risk and the reward of a season's harvest. Conceptually, this is a great fit for wildcrafting. Customers pay up front to receive whatever the season produces. But if you go this route, you want to make sure you have a really well written CSA member agreement so that there's documented proof a customer understood the situation going in. Hmm. I love so far that these two options both um,
0: incorporate some reliance on community, like other foragers, to sort of pool production and begin to set standards, or those agreements with your members to make sure they understand how they're investing in your farm.
2: Um, Yeah, I appreciate those. Yeah, and this last strategy is really similar. Um, So this one I'm gonna offer is that you develop relationships with individual buyers or institutional buyers even, whose values align with your own. So it's more of that community building. So what I'm talking about here is finding a really unique customer that would be willing to put money on the table, to invest for the benefit of uh, being at first in line once you've foraged your wild products. There's lots of opportunity here for creativity. We've seen contracts where a buyer does commit to buying, even if a crop fails or if foraging doesn't work out. Imagine, say, an environmental college that might agree to pay for foraging, even if little or items other than the expected wild food were actually wildcrafted and available at the end of the season. You know, maybe this institution's reputation and moral commitment to low-impact food production is more important than the specific outcome, and they are willing to work with what they get in exchange for supporting a unique type of food production.
1: Yeah, thank you, Chloe, for walking us through those options and, um, really demonstrating how relationships, um, business relationships, community relationships intertwine with legal agreements. Um, yeah, there's a lot, lot of creative potential here, um, for you farmers and ranchers out there who are going out and wildcrafting products to sell, um, and selling those right alongside your other crops and products and you know, just with the changing climate, um, all of them being vulnerable. And so we appreciate you for hanging in here for this episode and learning about how you can manage your risk of lost revenue when things don't quite work out with wild forage crops. Um, and also, Chloe, thanks for painting um a picture of how and why uh crops are certain crops, you know, that we think of as crops are uninsurable ones um, and giving those clear options for what producers can do to protect against the risk of failure when revenue is on the line. And to any listeners out there who are foraging
0: and selling those goods as a regular part of your business, we would love to hear from you. What has your risk management strategy been for crop loss when insurance coverage is not available? So we'd love it if you could share experience with us and what you learned from this episode in the short survey that's linked in the show notes. And as always, thank you for everything that you do and for joining us today.
1: Thanks all. Bye. Bye, Thank
0: you. so glad you joined us for this episode of the Farm Commons podcast. If you are looking for more resources on your burning farm law questions, visit our website at farmcommons.org for a variety of workshops, guides, checklists, tutorials, and more. You can also email your questions and comments to info at farmcommons.org. Stay tuned for our next episode, and until then, keep growing
2: and uh this is rachel saying this material is funded in partnership by usda risk management agency under award number rma 22 cpt zero zero one two three nine two these (laughs) are (laughs) vocal (laughs) exercises
1: Oh, we're recording. Great.